Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? The devil always sends his heirs and pairs into the world, pairs of opposites, and he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one heir to draw you gradually into the opposite one. That was a quote from C.S. Lewis, not about today, but about the UK 70 years ago. And yet, of course, it is true today. In Christian circles, there seems to be two opposing factions warring against each other right now. On the one side are the truth warriors who uh, take down critical race theory, dismantle progressivism in the church, and dunk on the trans community for their irrationality. On the other side of Christian circles, there are the justice warriors. They're calling out racism and systemic racism within the white church. They're advocating for inclusive environments that embrace trans identity. And they're calling out all of the phobias endemic to evangelicalism. And then, of course, there's the rest of us. And we wonder, do we have to choose between truth and justice? And if truth is devoid of justice, is it really true? And if justice is devoid of truth, is it really just? C.S. Lewis got it right. When you have two errors battling against each other, everyone can see the problem on one side, but they are often blind to the problems on their own side. In Thaddeus Williams' book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, he refuses to make the fool's choice. He won't pick between truth or justice. No, he follows Jesus and he says we have to pick both. His book issues challenges to the truth warriors who who ignore obvious injustices, both past and present, but it also challenges the justice warriors who have left behind the truth for relativism, and it calls us all to become truth and justice, not warriors, but truth and justice peacemakers in the name of Jesus. Thaddeus teaches theology at Biola, and he's also an up-and-coming cultural commentary on the issues that are dividing us today. He's also just a really fun guy to talk to. I think he'll pick that up in the interview. So let's get to it. I really uh, sincerely enjoyed your book. I, I, I gave a lot of copies to people because I, I thought it was it was speaking directly to our moment. And so I do want to start by by talking about where we're at culturally right now in 2021. It seems to me, and you can disagree with this, that we have a lot of justice warriors out there and we have a lot of truth warriors out there, but there seems to be a, a paucity of truth and justice warriors, people who are concerned with both. What do you think? Sure. Uh, Well, I staunchly disagree with your premise. (laughs) You know, it it teeters on the edge of damnable heresy. No, I'm just Mm -hmm. kidding. Mm -hmm. Um, I I would say to to the first half of that equation, 
um, justice warriors who, you know, truth takes a back seat to the pursuit of justice. My sort of working theory on that as a child of the 90s is that the 90s were so relativistic, so anything goes. You know, Britney Spears were not that innocent. Uh, Seinfeld had the famous punchline over and over again. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, Nirvana (laughs) had the breakout hit, you know, come as you are. And, And it was very much the only sin in the 90s was calling anything sin. And the problem with that extreme form of relativism is it just doesn't jive with human nature. It doesn't fit our design. We're created to be part of a moral drama. We're created to live out virtues that transcend us. And we were really stripped of that in, in the Western world there for a good long time. And it, it's sort of like a beach ball that you can try to push it, you can try to suppress it, but it's, it's just going to pop up eventually. That's my read on what's happening on that side of the equation. So, so you're saying that, that we never recovered from that? That you know, you and I, millennials, people who grew up during the the, the '90s era, we're still living in a, a Britney Spears worldview mindset. I'm not that innocent. Everything's okay. And I mean, is there any turning back from that? So, so I'm saying that that there is a definitive shift from the '90s, where we've gone from an anything goes zeitgeist, the the spirit of the age with anything goes, to what we're experiencing now, which is the opposite. I mean. We, we have become extremely judgmental as a society where to the point where now, you know, with a little help from a glowing box in our hand, we can sit in an air conditioned coffee shop and a few swipes of the thumb, we can judge a thousand strangers in three minutes. Um, and so now every line is scrutinized and excavated for its hidden white supremacy. It's hidden patriarchal oppression. It's, it's hidden homophobia. It's hidden, fill in the blank. And so what I'm saying is not that we're still in the 90s in terms of anything goes, but that that era was so suppressive of our God-given need to be part of a moral drama. It It was suppressed for so long that now we're witnessing the backlash to the 90s with the very people who, you know, 25 years ago would have said, hey, anything goes, are now saying nothing goes and we will shut you up if you don't agree with our orthodoxy. That's a really interesting approach. It feels like a a pendulum swing. You've got baby boomers who are more of the moralistic type and you've got Gen Xers and, you know, the 90s were very much so a product of Gen X, uh, which like you said, is anything goes. And, and now it's almost like we're seeing the pendulum come back, but it's not this traditional religious morality. It's a, uh, well, it's what we're talking about. It's just, it's just notion of justice and, and equity and identity. And these are all the things by which I can determine whether someone's good or evil, right or wrong. It actually is religious. If you, if you really stop and think about it, there's been a lot of good work done on this by um, Andrew Sullivan and John McCorder and Camilla Paglia, none of whom are Christian, by the way, but they're they're recognizing that, you know, maybe making the point I was saying two minutes ago in different categories would be the 90s suppressed religiosity, our, our desire for something bigger than ourselves, because it just said, well, follow your heart, be true to yourself. To quote David Foster Wallace, the great um, postmodern novelist, he said, we're all now kings and queens of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms. 
So the nineties really like he nailed it, right? Like it trapped us in our little skull sized kingdoms. And I would say that now 2020s are people trying to break out of those and change the world out there. So it really is a religion. Um, a lot of the social justice movement, not all of it, but a lot of it is a religion that is a response to the suppression of our religious instincts for a good 20 years. So that now you have a set of dogmas, you have a clergy, you have a canon, you have what you're allowed to say, what you aren't, all these cultural liturgies that in Paul's language in Romans 1 just aren't centered on creator worship, but some form of creation worship. Now, obviously, you're, you're making an assessment of the movement. I, I think people within the movement would not see it, for the most part, as being religious. There was an interesting study that came out called Hidden Tribes, and one of the things that stands out about progressive activists in particular is their irreligiosity. They pray less. They are not a part of congregations. And so you're looking at it, though, and saying, no, the, the social structures here, these are religious structures. These are how people within religious communities have always acted. And whether or not you want to call it religious, there's something deeply religious about it. That's a really, I, I just have to say, it's a really interesting theory. So, so, so we lost truth, we lost religion, and now we're finding them again, but not in the traditional places that we've found them in the past. Yeah, that's exactly right. So think of like under Stalin's rule, they started under Stalin what was called, <laughs> this was a real thing, it blew my mind when I found it in my research, uh, but there was a group in Soviet Russia called the League of Militant Atheists. And that was a real thing, the League of Militant Atheists. It's like some superhero squad that goes out. <laughs> what were their superpowers? <laughs> the power of growing a ponytail and <laughs> trolling people online. That's good. Um, and uh, and I, I love atheists. I have many atheist friends. I taught atheists at a secular college for nine years. So, mm -hmm. you know, obviously I'm, I'm being tongue-in-cheek here. Um, but uh, under Stalin's rule, the, the League of Militant Atheists, if you were to ask them, they would say they're rejecting God. In reality, what happened was Stalin became their functional deity. You know, like G.K. Chesterton said, once you abolish God, the government becomes God. And so this is, you know, just approaching the whole question biblically. In Romans 1, Paul doesn't really have a category for atheism. He says we're all worshipers. We're all on our knees to something or someone. It, it might be the creator or it might be the creation but non-worship just isn't a biblical option. There, in other words, there are no true-to-the-core atheists. And I could say that having taught atheists for years and years, I never met a true-to-the-core atheist. They either worshipped um, a romantic partner, a political ideology, mm. science with a capital S. Um, so that, that sort of levels the playing field in the sense that everybody has some deity um, that we're bowing to. And that's going to shape our approach to justice. Yeah. So, so what do you think the modern social justice movement, what are they tempted to turn into idols? Sure. I would say um, the biggest one is the idol of self, self with the capital S. Um, and, and you see this, the research bears it out that it's 82% of Americans, um, regardless of political affiliation, 82% um, believe that the chief end of man, to borrow some language from the Westminster Catechism, 
is to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. Uh, the way the, the statement was actually phrased in this, this particular study was that, is the meaning of life to fulfill your, your personal pleasures and desires? 82% said, yep, that's, that's the point, the chief end of man. Uh, 84% said to live the happy life, to achieve your happiness, do what you want, do what you want. And then I think it was north of 88% who said to, to find that true happiness, you look within, you look within. That, that's massive. I mean, there's just all these studies out there that, you know, maybe Islam's the fastest growing religion in the world. Um, I think this sort of cult of self is the fastest growing religion in the world. And so the way that gets fused with social justice. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, because it seems like those things are hard to integrate. I mean, just a second ago, you're saying, hey, now all of a sudden we're looking out into the world and saying, I want to change the world. I, I'm not a relativist. I do care about things out there. But yeah, I integrate that with, and I only care about myself. Not I only care about myself. I, I care about self-fulfillment and living out my internal aspirations, being true to me. Good question. So think of it this way. If I were to say, um, hey, Patrick, I'm a theist. I believe in God. I believe in the God of the Bible. I just don't believe he's a trinity or I don't believe he's good or I don't believe he's sovereign. You, you would scratch your head and say, you know, what have you been smoking? Like that's, that's sort of not an option. If, if you aren't believing in God as he's revealed himself, you aren't believing in the God who actually exists. You're, you're trying to erase his existence. So, so follow me on this. If, if we in the 21st century have bought into this, I get to define my own reality mindset. Functionally, what I'm doing is playing God. I'm, I'm becoming my own deity. I define a meaning and mystery of my own existence in the words of Chief Justice Kennedy in the 92 Planned mm -hmm. Parenthood case. I get to define the meaning and mystery of my own existence. So if I'm a functional deity and you reject how I define myself, then you're trying to erase my existence. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I'm sort of playing God here and you have a worldview that questions my sovereign authority, my autonomy, my ability to define myself, then you are trying to erase me. And so now it becomes a justice issue to silence anybody who would question my sovereignly chosen identity. That, that's the connection point right there. And one of the big gaps between what the Bible calls justice and what often today is being called justice. Real, real quick, I, because your original question was so good, um, you asked, you know, what are the idols behind a lot of today's justice movements? And I said, number one, you have the idol of self. But here's the problem is that demands to create my own identity and then sustain that identity over time. Man, that's an impossible weight. That is an impossible weight. I, no creature can bear that because it's a creator-sized task. Mm. And so as I'm trying to create and sustain my identity over time, eventually I start to buckle under that weight. So that leads to a second idol that often crops up under today's justice movements, which is the idol of state. I know, if I don't believe in God, if I don't believe in a transcendent, then I look to the next biggest thing I can imagine, 
which is the government and law and public policy, to endorse and celebrate my self-chosen identity to help offset some of that crushing weight. And so this is, you know, G.K. Chesterton's famous insight that once you abolish God, the government becomes God. Mm. You know, if, if there isn't a God out there to justify me, to declare me not guilty, then I turn to the next biggest thing I can imagine. And I push for, for legislation that's going to, to endorse and celebrate my self-chosen identity. So I would say those are the two biggest idols um, that I see cropping up in the justice movement today. Again, not all of the movement, but significant swaths of it, the false gods of self and state. And then just real briefly, when the church gets mixed up in this, it tends to fall for a third idol of social acceptance, which is, man, we don't want to be called bigots. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be called phobics. We don't want to be called haters. This seems to be, you know, in every Super Bowl ad, it seems to be in every SNL episode, it seems to be um, coming from the government. It's in my news feed. I, I don't want to be on, quote, the wrong side of history. So to avoid the name calling and the stigma, I'm going to sort of drift along with with the trends. Well, and it's really interesting to me because phobia really is the only kind of uh, internalized sin that we're willing to recognize. It's, it's this maladjusted self who can't accept other people. But other than that, we really have no category for sin. You know, it's interesting to me as you were comparing this to uh, Lenin and, and what happened in the USSR. Uh, but I think there's another analogy, which is 1789 in the French Revolution and the yes. influence of people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And, and one of the things that is really interesting about him is, is in his little memoir that he does about himself, he has a story about stealing asparagus, which is clearly supposed to <laughs> parallel St. Augustine's story about stealing pears. But whereas... Augustine draws the conclusion, I stole these pears because I am sinful on the, there's something wrong with me, right? I, I have a problem that needs to be addressed. Uh, Rousseau goes the exact opposite direction and says, the problem was that I wasn't true to myself. I was pressured by these other people into making this bad decision. And he sees it as a state's job to free people to be true to their inner nature and to actualize themselves as they really are. And so it's fascinating to me because I mean, this stuff is not brand new. We can go back to, again, 1789 and even earlier and find analogies to it all. That's so good. So yeah, Augustine stealing pears recognizes the biblical insight, his heart's depraved, he needs a redeemer. Rousseau, I mean, who steals asparagus? Really? <laughs> I love like, asparagus. Although if I had to choose between the two, I might choose the pears. Yeah, I had no idea, but thank you for enlightening me that Rousseau was an asparagus klepto. So, so think of it like this. Rousseau, you're right. His worldview, he sort of rules the world from the grave in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is his dogma, really, is what it is, that there's the noble savage in our pure state, free from civilization. We are essentially good. It's the systems. We can blame all evil on the systems. That should be ringing a bell for our listeners, that all the problems are external. That That is, you know, you can see a lot of today's, quote-unquote, social justice movements have just torn a page straight out of Rousseau here. Well, here's, here's the fascinating thing, is fast forward from Rousseau and the 1790s and the French Revolution um, to, to Paul Gauguin, you know, uh, Vincent van Gogh's buddy. Uh, they're, they're painting pals, and Gauguin loves his Rousseau, 
and he's living in Europe, which is, you know, something we hear about today. Western culture is the source of all evil and oppression and suffering. And, and so he buys into this idea, I need to be the noble savage. And so he effectively abandons his family, abandons his painting career uh, in France and flies out to Tahiti. Uh, maybe that was before flight. Maybe he <laughs> catches the slow boat. I want to, you know, for the fact checkers out there, he ends up metaphorically into, flies, you know, he metaphorically flies. It is a flight from Western culture. And he ends up there expecting, you know, these Tahitians, man, they get it. They're the noble savages. They haven't been tainted by all this systemic oppression. He gets there and finds that it's, it's hardly the, Eden that he expected it to be. It's hardly the the utopia, the eutopia, the good place he expected it to be. He finds um, disease is rampant, STDs are rampant, um, corrupt politicians are rampant. Um, and so Gauguin actually sets off on a hike into the hills of Tahiti um, and drinks poison to kill himself. Thankfully, he survives and, and descended the mountain and got some medical help and um, ended up painting my favorite painting of his, which is um, where do we come from? Who are we? Where are we going? It's a massive, beautiful canvas. Um, but, but the reason I'm telling that story um, isn't to flex that like, Oh, I know stuff about Gauguin. Uh, but, it, but it's, it's, I think in Gauguin, I have a section in the book called we're all Gauguin's now. Because there's a whole generation now that has bought into the same doctrine of Rousseau, that I don't need to do the hard thing and look in the mirror and take my sin to the cross. I don't need to repent. I don't need the sanctifying, heart-transforming work of the Holy Spirit. I just need to go out and fight the systems so that we can all become noble savages. The, the, the problem is all the systems out there. And don't, don't get me wrong, there are sinful systems. We can, we can talk about that later if you want. But I think we're setting up an entire generation for that Gogon realization, that disillusionment, that even if you were to change all those systems, you haven't changed the fundamental twistedness, brokenness, depravity, and sin in the human heart. That, that's a helpful light, I think, to look at a lot of this. Is- well, and it's probably not incidental that we are going through the most precipitous rise in anxiety and depression sure. disorders in American history. I mean, since it's been recorded, and in particular among people uh, in that 18 to 29-year-old and, and even slightly above that range. And I think it goes back to what you're saying. When we turn the self into an idol and we put that creator pressure onto ourselves to make myself, what else can it create but terrible anxiety? When we start trusting the state to to be God, to come up with the program that can solve all the problems, and it will fail. You know, I think about myself back in 2008. uh, It was my first election I voted in, and I was a huge Obama fan. He came to speak at my university. And and I really thought, you know, he's going to change the world. He's not gonna he's not gonna keep bombing Iraq. He's not gonna keep murdering people. He's he's not gonna be on the side of these big Wall Street companies that just got this wild bailout while the rest of us suffer. He's not gonna you know, he's gonna solve the homeless problem. I see on Columbia Street yeah. every single day and I care about and then like it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you Open know? change, right? Those were the slogans. Yeah. Open change. And I and I bought in. And and my point isn't that we shouldn't want hope and that we shouldn't want change. My point is that if you put your hope in those 
those things. If you turn them into idols, they will crush you in the end. And the only end result is what happened to Gogan. It's this moment of anxiety, depression, and hopefully not you know suicide. That's, a, that's the extreme. But these things aren't incidental. It's, it's not an accident that we're in this moment culturally and also we're having all of these psychological disorders rise. Yeah, which to your question a minute ago, you know, how does this stuff pop up on the right? Uh, so in the book, I talk about a guy named Christian Picciolini, who was uh, born and raised in the streets of Chicago. And he felt everything you were just describing. You know, he felt the disillusionments, um, anxiety, anger at the state of the world. And he was, he was lonesome and sad. And essentially, along comes the Chicago area skinheads. And says, you want a purpose bigger than yourself? Here's one. White supremacy, neo-Nazism. Are you lonely? You need a community? You need to belong? Well, join our neo-Nazi club and, you know, you'll have brothers who who will die for you. And you have brothers worth dying for. You have a cause bigger than yourself. You have community that can rally around you for that bigger cause. And so he gets, he gets sucked in and in a short period of time becomes one of the chief recruiters. Um, he, he climbs the ranks pretty quick uh, in the Chicago area skinheads. And he, he, I tell this story in the book that by the grace of God, eventually he was set free from, you know, the psychosis of white supremacy and neo-Nazism. And now he runs an organization slash ministry to help draw other people out of that ideology of hate. Um, but, but you can see that in so many ways that we could easily fill two hours talking about the far left and the far right are mirror images of each other. Well, and you think about white supremacy, that's exactly what it is. It is this affirmation of who you are. That You take a young white male who's been told by culture, by virtue of your skin color and your gender, you are functionally part of the problem. And then you have a group of people who come along and say, no, <laughs> the you inside of you is wonderful and great. And you know what the problem is? It's all the stuff out there and we're going to do something about it. I mean, it's bizarre when you start putting the comparisons next to each other. You know, I hear people say sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between David Duke and some of these really far left thinkers. And, and, I, and at times I'm like, yeah, I, I have to agree. Now, I'm not saying that they're the same because they're not, <laughs> but it, we, we, we do have to address it. I'm curious on the right end, what I hear and what I have heard a lot of Christians, I, I think about people like John MacArthur have made these statements that say social justice is not a part of the gospel. It's not a concern of the gospel. It's outside of the scope of the gospel. And so they would think that someone like you, who in your book, you you really robustly defend the need for Christians to care about social justice. They would say, look, you've compromised the main thing. How would you respond to that? Yeah, well, it's funny you should ask. Like when the book came out, um, the Gospel Coalition really promoted it a few different ways. I got to have a good conversation with Colin Hansen over there and and they let me crank out a few articles on it. And they just posted a simple like kind of social media blurb that was, I think right off the back cover. Um, God does not suggest he commands that we fight injustice. And a variation of that is that social justice isn't an option for the Christian. It's essential. Now, if you bothered to just click through and see what the article is about, um, you would realize I'm not some like 
KGB, like communist Marxist infiltrator trying to destroy the church with my... Yeah, but how did we get into a world where we're talking about justice can somehow equal sign that, you know, it, it makes, it makes zero sense to it's me. It's the you know? wacky times we're in, man. It's, I start the book out by just rifling through passage after passage where God is not suggesting, but commanding us, you know, your listeners are going to know Micah 6, 8. Yeah. I just pulled it up on my computer. I was about to read it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Go for it. Do it. Uh, he has told you what is good and what the Lord requires from you to do justice this one says embrace faithful love, but in other versions you see to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. I mean, that is a really simple set of tasks. Okay, here's here's three things. Do justice, act justly, you know, love kindness, love mercy, love faithfulness towards your community and walk humbly with God. Here, you know, talk about simplicity. Yeah, let, let me just fire off more scripture here because that's way more insightful than anything you or I can say. Uh, is this not, this is God speaking, uh, is this, not the fast that I choose. Loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of yoke, let the oppressed go free, break every yoke. Another verse, uh, this is referring to one of the kings in the Old Testament, that he judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well, is not this to know me, declares the Lord. So in this passage, knowing God is actually equivalent to, equated with judging the cause of the poor and needy with justice. Can I pause you there? Because it, it makes me think of something and I, I'm going to tread into some, some, I won't make you tread into these waters, but you know, I, I, th- I think about around the time of Donald Trump's election and uh, as, as his behavior towards women was being brought into the foreground and a lot of people were comparing him to King David and saying, well, you know, God can use King David to do great things. Can't he use Donald Trump? Now I could say a lot of things about that, but what came to mind were passages like what you just read, which is that the good king follows God by caring for the needy. That That is in the foreground of his concerns. And so if we're gonna talk about what the Bible has to say about national leaders, it's not merely God forgives. It's far deeper than that, that there's a deep responsibility if you want to be in a position of political leadership and authority. I 100% agree. The problem is like, Man, the options these days, it's like, do you want to drink cyanide or do you want to put a luger to your temple and blow your brains out? Like, it's just Mm -hmm. think of when Trump was elected the first, I guess, the first and only time um, who his competition was. And if we're applying that biblical criteria, who really cares about justice and who cares about ending oppression here, of course, both sides are going to market themselves that way. And both sides actually have legitimate things to say about how they would care for the the needy, for the marginalized. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so it comes down to a question. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, Patrick, because one of the catalysts for some of the rifts we're seeing right now in the church world over questions of social justice really was the, the 2016 election. And I've read, you know, guys like Jamar Tisby, um, who does some really great work and a lot of things that I find problematic. But but if you read his Color of Compromise, bestseller, sold over 100,000 copies, New York Times bestseller, um, as a black brother in Christ, he says, you know, the election of Trump to him was just all the proof he needed that white evangelicals are so heavily steeped in racism that he needs to break with white evangelicalism. And, and, I, and that 
that trope has sort of been rolled out over and over since 2016. Mm-hmm. And, and my approach to that is to say, look, the Bible commands us to be charitable. Mm-hmm. You know, love is not easily offended. It, it hopes all things, believes all things. And I, I have several friends who voted for Trump. I myself did not. I didn't vote for the other side either. My wife and I picked some <laughs> random dude from Michigan who is like really. Oh, my dude was from Utah, but I'm with you. <laughs> random dude. I can't even remember like, his name anymore. I think his name was Evan something. I, uh, that's, that's how far I've come. My, my guy was named Mike. I voted for Mike. Great. We, we got Evan and Mike. <laughs> <laughs> he got two votes. My wife and I. Yeah. So yeah, Mike in 2024. We'll be back to our episode really quick. Look, if you're enjoying the content in here, you want to sign up for our newsletter. We like to write little articles every week that are kind of based on our podcast, but they really take one idea that we don't spend a lot of time talking about and expand them. Not to a super long article, but to an article you could read in 10 minutes and get a good little nugget out of that's gonna help you think about what's happening in our world in a more Jesus-centered way. So make sure to go to choosetruthovertribe.com and subscribe to our newsletter. So I, I have plenty of friends who pulled the lever for Trump and people who, who I've been really close to for a long time. And for them, their mindset is if Hillary ends up in the White House, that will yield unjust results, especially for preborn image bearers of God, um, serious threats to religious liberty, all, all kinds of things. But you see what the narrative becomes is the only conceivable way you could pull the lever for Trump is if you're racist. Yeah. And that's, let's call that what it is. It's slander. It's slander. Or in in the opposite direction. I said it goes the other way. Yeah, the other way too. The only way you're not voting for Trump um, is if you hate America and if you hate white people um, and if you're homophobic and bigoted. And it's like, that's beneath us as Christians. It's beneath us as Christians. But we're playing those games in churches all around the country. What what in the book I describe as the Newman effects, you know, going back to a 2018 interview between um, the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson and um, Channel 4's Kathy Newman, where everything he said, she would just rephrase in the most cartoonish, unflattering and damnable light possible. So you're saying women can't, aren't smart enough to run these top companies. He's like, what? No. So you're saying that transgender activists could lead to the genocide of millions. And he's like, what are you talking about? We're all, I argue in the book, we're all Kathy Newman's now, where if you yeah. say you care about ending racism now, boom, the, the Newman effect kicks in. You're a Marxist. You're a commie. You're a far left social justice warrior snowflake. Mm. You're saying maybe this or that wasn't racist. Well, obviously you, you're the grand wizard of the KKK, some kind of fascist. Well, it's, it's we're living in a memeified reality, and people are thinking in, in the length of headlines. And and unfortunately, it's like a ventriloquist act where we've got you know these these incendiary headlines out there, and then Christians even unfortunately being the dummy that's getting played along and just repeating the 
the phrases back. And, you know, my prayer is that Christians would detribalize, that we would detox from these political parties that are influencing us or the media organizations that represent them, which are influencing us, and just start asking honest questions about what's the Bible say about this? I, I don't care what the person on the left or the right says. I mean, race has become, uh, I think, even more so since the publication of your book, increasingly one of these fault lines where, and I, and I, I feel it, it's, I, I, I would affirm that uh, structural racism is a real thing, uh, not just in the past, but also in the present. Now, I think we need to have clear definitions and we need to make clear cases. We, we, we can't just point at anything that, that looks different and say, well, there's structural racism. But even that statement, like you said, from the right has earned me personally uh, <laughs> being called a Marxist, a cultural Marxist, a, a CRT advocate and all these things. And, 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 it, and it drives me nuts. I go, well, no, that, that has memified reality. That, that's not what there's I am. There's nuance here. There's complexity. There's nuance. Yeah. Man, if only there was a book out there that like dealt with some of this stuff. <laughs> Maybe it was, if you could call it confronting injustice without compromising truth. Yeah. That, that'd be a good yeah. one. Something that we could confront justice and at the same time not compromise truth. That would be And I and I think that would be a good challenge to continue to bring to the right and to the Christian right in particular, is that matters of justice are gospel matters yeah. in the sense that Jesus came announcing a kingdom. He had a vision for how the world was supposed to function and how he was going to be king over it. And and we Christians, we get to bring the appetizers to that great feast that's to come. And so we should care deeply about these justice matters. That's what I appreciate so much about your book is that I felt like you held both of those things clearly in balance. And they're challenges that I think both sides desperately, desperately, desperately need to hear. I realize we've spent our time mostly talking about the left. And I've, I've discovered that I get timestamps sometimes on things <laughs> where it's like, well, you talked for this long. And I think all I would say is this, if this was a year ago, I suspect we would be talking more about the right. Uh, but now we're living in a cultural moment where you know the left has more political and, and cultural power than, than the right does. And those things go back and forth. But I don't think it's a matter of how long do you talk about each. It's a matter of saying, I choose Jesus over my tribe. That, that, that's going to be my, my person. So, so let me ask you one last yeah, question sure. before you sign off. What do you think is the most important thing for followers of Jesus that, that we can be doing to uh, maybe promote unity across these tribal lines. I mean, you just said we're calling each other names. We're not listening to each other. Well, how do we heal? How do we bring unity? Yeah, th that's a massive question, a really good question, a, a pressing question these days. Let me just start really down to earth with something I do every single day. A lot of my my spiritual life is shaped by Galatians 5 in particular, where you know, Paul lays out this dichotomy between, on the one hand, there's the works of the flesh, um, the sin nature, our fallenness, our depravity, and he contrasts that with the Spirit. And he's saying, these are two ways to live. You know, in all the complexity of the world, it really boils down to these two ways to live, by the sin nature or by the Spirit. And so he, he lists the deeds of the flesh um, right, right behind me there on, on the couch just uh, three nights ago. I sat down with my four kids and my wife, and we did this this whole thing on the fruit of the Spirit together and just, just had a blast digging into this passage because that phrase, the fruit of the Spirit, and it lists, you know, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and mm -hmm. faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit of the Spirit is a Greek turn of phrase, karpao taunumau, let me just nerd out on the original languages for a second <laughs> uh, with you. Go for it. Um, it's, it's what 
scholars would call a genitive of production. And a genitive of production, all that means is that you could swap out the word of with the words produced by to get a fuller, richer sense of the intended meaning. So love is not just a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit produced by the Spirit. Joy, the the most authentic joy you've ever known or I've ever known or any of the listeners have ever known was not produced by us. It was produced in us by the Spirit. The truest patience that we've ever had was not produced by us, but in us by the Spirit. And so when I have these conversations or or somebody, you know, calls me a bunch of names online, I, I have an option. I can respond in the sin nature or in the Spirit. And there have been times when I've responded in the sin nature that never ends well for anybody. Everybody ends up a little dumber. Everybody ends up with their blood pressure a little higher. And and so I would say I would start there and recognize the easiest thing in the world is to point my finger at the other side and say, man, what a bunch of jerks. What a bunch of hypocrites. The hardest thing to do is to look in the mirror and say, I need grace, not just justifying grace, the good news, the gospel that I'm in a right relationship with God, thanks to the cross work and empty tomb of Jesus, of King Jesus. But also I need daily sanctifying grace because left to myself, I'm just going to keep playing this losing game of mudslinging and self-righteousness and projecting all evil on the other side of the political spectrum. So what that looks like for me really practically on a daily basis is when I wake up in the morning or I'm praying with the wife or kids, it's Holy Spirit, This is what Paul prays for the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3. He says, may God cause us to increase and abound in love. God, would you cause us to increase and abound in love? Give us a supernatural dose of patience today. Give us a supernatural dose of joy. Because if I'm filled with the fruit of the Spirit, it it becomes almost impossible to play sort of the the culture war game. And and that's how we start to take our first steps towards a beautiful third way between the polarization that we see in our day. So I think that's a powerful message and it certainly speaks to starting with ourselves, which is a good place. You know, I I have this little practice. Sometimes I'll put my name in front of uh, those long list passages that describe (laughs) what a Christian walking with Jesus, being powered by the spirit looks like, you know, and so it'd be uh, Patrick is a, he, he, he is characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like, as I say, I'm like, oh, I'm cringing right now because I know <laughs> it is so far from reality and it's so convicting for me to say, you know what? It doesn't start with having uh, the right worldview and the right uh, philosophical answers to every single question. It really does start with, is my life being empowered by the spirit? And here's what it looks like. This is what the spirit produces in your life. That's great. Uh, would you pray for our audience? Maybe pray for those Absolutely. fruit of the spirit to come to life inside of us. I would love to. Sovereign God, you are uh, the definer of reality. You are on in charge. You are on the throne. Uh, a lot of times we pretend that we're sovereign. Um, we talked earlier about how that can be an idol on the left, but it can certainly be an idol on the right too. It can be an idol for anybody with a pulse to... Um, pretend that we're in charge. And the truth is, Lord, you are infinitely better at being God than we are. And so we just want to humble ourselves before you and acknowledge um, that you are supreme, Father, Son, and Spirit. You are supreme, not us. And with that realization, um, we recognize that we can't 
cause ourselves to increase and abound in love without resorting to some kind of legalism or self-help spirituality or spiritual showmanship. If, if we want real love, it's got to come from, from you. So as Paul prayed for the Thessalonians, I pray for everybody listening to this right now. I pray this for Patrick. I pray it for myself. Would you cause us to increase and abound in love in this cultural moment where there's so much strife? Would you cause your church around the country and around the world to increase and abound in joy where there's so much sort of doomsday, catastrophic thinking? Would you create a a new level of supernaturally infused joy in your church around the globe that would be magnetic to, to people out there who are feeling despair? Would you create supernatural doses of peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. We need you. We need all that grace. And I pray that that happens in us in a way that makes it impossible for us to feel self-righteous because we recognize it came 100% from you and thanks to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.